Namaste and welcome to the Hindu Parenting Podcast. It is that time of year when many students from India go to the US for college. A couple of decades ago, students used to go mainly for master's programs, but now we see younger students just out of school going to join undergraduate programs. Sending a child abroad to study is increasingly viewed as an end in itself. Do Hindu parents give a thought to what awaits their children in college? What is the college experience like for Hindu students? What kind of changes could we see in them when they come back home for a visit? Our aim in doing this podcast is to explore the range of issues faced by Hindu students and parents and also to get a conversation going among parents. Who better to help us wade through the maze of questions than Vijaya Vishwanathan, co-author of the latest bestseller, Snakes in the Ganga. Vijaya Ji is also the co-founder of Agastya Gurukulam, which aims to revive the traditional Bharatiya method of education. Namaste, Vijaya Ji. Uh, namaste, Rekha Ji and uh, Shalini Ji. Uh, lovely to be here with you guys today. We are super excited to have you as part of the podcast today. Perhaps a good place to start this conversation would be to think about the feelings of parents sending their 18-year-old children far away from home. Parents no doubt have their apprehensions, but the general thought is that if they have made it so far without any major problems or vices, children are going to be okay because they are now adults. How realistic is this? Does parenting end at 18? Could things go wrong after that? What's it like out there? So first of all, we have to ask what is adulthood and who defines it? In the old days, in in the Indian context, we would have uh, young uh, teenagers get married. This is maybe three, four generations ago. And of course, we all looked, looked at it as a child marriage and we mocked it. We don't want it anymore. And for right reasons also, perhaps. But one thing good about that, redeeming about that was it was just not marriage for the sake of marriage, but it it taught people to take responsibilities. It taught, taught young adults to take responsibilities, right? So you had uh, 16-year-olds who were married and we mocked that. But here we have 16-year-olds who are okay with having sexual relationships without any other responsibilities. So now we define adulthood as having rights, rights of adults, adulthood, without having any of the responsibility of what it takes to be an adult. So even these children who are going overseas, uh, they are all dependent on their parents. Parents take loans, take money, and fund this education. So that is... You know, so they are dependent on the parent, like being children, uh, and yet they want um, rights of uh, of an adult, which is sort of ironical because we we mm-hmm. don't look at it. We've just bought into this whole uh, American Western um, frameworks and uh, and 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 metrics. You know, they have uh, certain standards that we follow implicitly without even questioning. So somehow, eighteen magically becomes. Um, you know, one becomes an adult uh, and there is no no other discussion, you know, whether the person is mature enough because different children are, you know, you find younger, young women are more mature than young men, for example. 
right? And within that also, you find even if anyone who's had two, three children, um, uh, who's a parent of two or three children will understand that one child always is more mature than the other child. So being raised in the same household and having similar samskaras and the same genes, if you will. So it's also an individual thing. So I think we need to look at what exactly do we mean by adulthood? It, does it just mean a certain age or do we talk about the individual and, and their rights, you know, uh, and or should we look at what should be the responsibility? Can, can they take care of themselves in every aspect? Because being an adult is to be totally independent. And I think the Americans do a good job about that. Um, they tell you, OK, now you're 18. Now you fend for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas Indians, we cherry pick, you know, we cherry pick. Okay, the 18 magical number, 18 years old, you're adult now. Uh, but of course, we fund and we mollycoddle and we send food and make, you know, call another relative to take care of them and they are in trouble, all of that. And we never let them work. We just say, go study, I'll take a loan. So we, we sort of treat them like a child, but then we give them all these entitlements uh, of adulthood. And so I think it ends up being a disaster. Whereas the American parent would just say, well, you're an adult now, you can have a boyfriend, but toss burgers in the morning and you can go on a date in the night. And that's up to you. I'm not funding any of this. No. So you've talked about the uh, child angle in this. Flip it around. What about the parenting angle? I mean, you did, you did touch on, on it a little bit that we do the thing. So like... So the uh, like Rekha asked, parenting does it end at eighteen? It does in the US apparently. So yeah, but it, it but yeah, it does end at in the US it definitely ends at 18. And there there are rights and responsibilities that go hand in hand. With the India, I think we Indian parents do it all upside down. We cherry pick different things because we succumb to the pressure. Uh and we so we we think okay, now it should end, and this is a rite of passage. People should be independent at 18. And yet we we can't let go in some ways because we know the children can't uh, take care of themselves. Yeah, financially, how many kids, you know, entire privilege, forget even sending them abroad, look at even Ashoka. When we look at the kids that uh, go to Ashoka, the kids that are not on any kind of uh, scholarship or whatever, right? Very few of them are on scholarship. Many parents spend 10 lakhs a year for four years and, and send their kids to live in a dorm because, um, again, uh, that's what Ashoka asks you to do. They want you to live in a dorm. And so we say yes without even questioning. And we pay for it. So the the Indian parent is also uh, sort of gullible and, and just goes with the flow without thinking. So, so as much as I would say the system outside can be blamed uh, for all these uh, vices, I think the Indian parent also, the average Indian parent doesn't question anything. So I think the Indian parent needs to question whether, you know, what he or she is doing is right. Uh, I know we all love our children a lot, but I think if we are giving them rights, uh, we should tell them to have responsibility, which we are not able to. That In that respect, we want to be Indian. So, so Indian parents should really think about what is it that they're trying to achieve by on one side spoiling their children, on the other side giving them uh, this kind of endless amount of rights and then not having boundaries to say this is where the buck stops and, and essentially taking charge. It all, it all amounts to taking charge, right? We need to take charge. And parenting is not always about saying yes. Parenting is about drawing boundaries. And if those boundaries have to be crossed, then we have to renegotiate the terms, right? 
to renegotiate the uh, responsibilities part of the equation with the child so it seems like uh, you're saying indian parents can do a much better job of preparing their kids first of all so would would you have any uh, suggestions as to you know what are the kind of things that uh, that parents can start talking to kids about and uh, this being a hindu parenting uh, podcast uh, i would like to ask specifically about hindu parents because uh, as far as resources are concerned i think a lot of uh, jewish christian or uh, muslim groups they have their own uh, um, circles and they have their own uh, you know prayer rooms or mosques chapels whatever and they do have a group of uh, students that they can interact with but when you talk about hindu students specifically uh, we are just sending them off without much preparation about what they could expect so how can we do a better job of this okay first is to understand what you can expect right when you send your child mm-hmm. abroad now first of all we uh, hindu parents have not given them samskaras of just daily prayer how many how many families actually do a 5 minute puja in the morning every day it's that all that has been lost they say my grandmother Correct. you know my mother in law used to do it even the you know people in the 40s and 50s will say oh my mother in law does puja but you know we don't or my mother and grandmother used to do vishnu sahasranamam but we don't so we don't continue that um, in the house and our children essentially in fact many marwadi houses um, you will see there'll be a pandit that comes in many rich marwadi houses i've been to they have a pandit come in every day to do nitya puja and uh, mm-hmm. so everybody takes aarti all of that very nice but uh, but the next generation the kids are all educated overseas they are not going to follow this right so even those houses where the youngsters have been raised in that atmosphere it's they have sort of they are sort of losing it now what can you what so we have first we are not preparing them with samskaras and then we are sending them overseas to an environment that's totally alien now what can you sort of expect for example you know there was a there's a lot of hindu phobia in many people uh, talk about hindu phobia but this is a real thing there there is a study by radgars university uh, which shows uh, on social media you know how much hindu phobia there is there are memes or uh, genocidal memes on hindus uh, by various islamist networks and then there are telegram groups that have that are hindu phobic so there's a big ai study done uh, using ai and they have said that um, there is indeed a lot of hindu phobia on the on social media platforms so our kids are all exposed to social media platforms and uh, in the us you will you will face that even more because those become relevant um, you know in the ecosystem over here so uh, w- so what can hindu students expect when they come here they can see a lot of hindu uh, hindu phobia on social media then if they are in um, in uh, schools like you know I- even ivy leagues like especially ivy leagues i would say like upen uh, we had suraj yengde uh, who is a harvard fellow who goes to upen and tells hindu kids um, that uh, if you have to be an ally uh, for the anti casteist movement then you essentially have to disown your parents because your parents are propagating casteism from one generation to another and you essentially are the inheritor of this these casteist uh, structural bias and you propagate it so you essentially have to disown your parents so this is what is being taught 
to young children. So you're paying this hefty fees of $75,000 or so per year um, uh, for a UPenn, University of Pennsylvania education. And you have a Harvard scholar coming to you and telling you to disown your parents. So this is, uh, first of all, they put a guilt upon the students saying that you guys are all castes, even though the children the, the, the children say that, hey, my parents have not done anything. I've not seen them being biased uh, or casteist or whatever. Uh, and neither am I. But that's not enough to be an ally. An ally means you have to actively commit yourself to the movement, anti-casteist movement, which is based on critical race theory. And... Um, and then and to do that they have to they have to actually disown their parents so this is uh, this is something that is actually new in the past decade or so this is happening um, where hindu phobia is just not some random attack and and you can just go about your business but you are asked your, your kids abroad are asked to commit to fighting this so called uh, injustice um, that they see. And the only way they can uh, fight it is not just virtue signaling here and there, but to actually uh, be on the streets protesting, uh, disown your parents, uh, commit time and money towards the cause, uh, you know, be an activist which, with followers and inf an influencer of sorts. So that is what is being incentivized. For your kids the other thing that's um, happening is you know we have uh children that have some sort of samskaras you know we did an interview with uh, a lady by the name of shobha swami on the infinity foundation and she raised her kids by the book she taught them dance classical dance and music and all of that and she'd send their kids to, she herself was a chinmaya mission teacher she taught weekend uh, sunday classes uh, her children were all fine. But then when they went to college, they got pulled into equality labs and some of the Hindu phobic groups. Again, there is a lot of incentives. You get uh, uh, graduate school admission, you get jobs um, very easily when you show on your resume that you are an activist uh, fighting for social justice. So there is a, a, a big network, an ecosystem that is built to encourage your, your children uh, to fight their heritage, fight their parents, um, and not be uh, sort of a conservative Hindu, and and uh, join the other side. There's a huge incentive because you get jobs, you get fame, you become a celebrity on social media. So this these are all big dangers that's happened in the more in the in the recent past, like 10, 15 years. It's not like how it was before. And and younger and younger children are coming to to the U.S. Right before it used to be only for graduate school. Now there are undergrads coming in. Yeah, that uh, that's um, that's more difficult to handle, I would say, right? Because the younger you are, the more you are susceptible to influences from outside, and the harder it is for you to take a perspective on uh, what is actually happening outside. Um, you see, before let's say a couple of decades ago or maybe even before that, the earliest instance that Hindu parents might be aware of is this dot busters thing that happened in New Jersey, where uh, women, Hindu women who had a bindi on their forehead would get attacked. But all those were physical attacks. So the nature of attacks is not physical. And I think that throws off a lot of parents who, um, who I, I have heard parents say, that uh, nothing physical is happening to the child. Uh, nobody is attacking them. So, so what do we worry about? What what could possibly go wrong? And uh, what you said really bring brought that out beautifully because 
it is an active uh, participation in destroying your links with your own heritage i think that is the danger that most parents at least the people sending their kids from india are simply not yet aware of right so there are these so there are on the physical side uh, you know there are two kinds of dangers one is a general danger and one is a specific hindu specific danger so the general dangers are of course drugs alcohol and eating beef things like that okay mm -hmm. so the the and if you go in to grad school you some of those things you do not get involved in because grad grad students are they are quite serious they are more mature they they don't have uh, time for these sort of recreational things but undergrad what hindu parents don't understand is that undergrad year 1 they call them frosh right freshmen are called frosh the frosh dorms and they put them in separate dorms called frosh dorms and or a combination uh, mm. and everybody is there's a mandate that you have to live in a dormitory system yeah even if you live a stone's throw away from the university most us university barring a few state schools right insist upon the fact that you live in the dorm and the and what they say is that you build friendships for life and this is where you network and there is this uh, camaraderie and brotherhood and all of that and students that way uh, become close and a tight knit community again all that sounds really good but the uk does not have that the the uk says well you can live in a, a single room or a double room or you can share it's all basically uh, uh, it depends on the finances right if you're willing to pay a lot you can even get an apartment in one of the um, british colleges and and live a life of luxury if you don't have any money at all you share your room with four people right so so it's a it, it's a it, it's um it's based on how much you can um you can fund your uh, your board but in america it's not like that whether you have money or not you have to take a loan and eat the go uh, sign up for a meal plan which usually most colleges have horrible meal plans because these colleges make money out of uh, you know out of the food program so they take money from you and then they give it out to they outsource it to some cheap uh, caterer and it's canned food and the food is really not that great yeah but they make money out of it's a big money maker and so is the residence hall the residence hall you pay um, you know you pay uh, the room and board goes anywhere from you know it's about 20000 or, uh, or maybe give or take right and so this is a huge money maker for um, american colleges and one must understand that american colleges are all this about a, making money this is a dorm you're saying no 20000 yeah. for a bed in a dorm not no, no, room and uh, room and board whatever meal plan and you have to have a meal plan you you cannot of course you know say i don't want the meal plan yeah. but uh, a few exceptions right so you have the very fact that you mandate that the first year or the first two years you absolutely have to stay on campus yeah red alarm bell should go off but nobody questions it because uh, they just say oh it's a, it's a right of passage you learn to bond and the children are told that the children are said this is a right of passage and you will have a time of your life it is like how the prom is built up right in high school that you have to go to the prom 
nobody questions uh, you know there are chaperones and high school kids right are dressed up and then they mm-hmm. go for a dance and they take photographs like uh, you know like a married couple right but uh, uh, and then there are sh- adults who are chaperones to ensure that you know so you bring fire to karpuram and you make sure that it doesn't ignite right mm-hmm. so there are adults who are chaperoning them making sure that they're not uh, dancing too closely or they're not having alcohol and you know and just disappearing under some bush so you have mm-hmm. all of that so it's sort of a ridiculous and nobody questions any of this right and all the kids are told that this is you know your high school prom how can you not go it's a rite of passage and for the american society maybe it's okay right because they have to go out and find uh, mates and then they're on their own but uh, and the, the, even the um, uh, so similarly the dorm is also a rite of passage you uh, so all the kids will say of course even in ashoka indian kids will say oh i have to be in ashoka and, and bond with my classmates and um, and it's very stressful for most of them they share a roommate i mean a room with a roommate and sometimes they don't get along their first time they're out of the house they're trying to live by themselves the the roommate might bring a boyfriend or a girlfriend and and in front of you have you know um sexual relationships in front of your eyes it's so these are all these things happen right in the dorm room and you the, and there's no escape so we have to um, essentially ask ourselves that when you send your kids um in the undergrad years there are extra physical things right one is uh, so getting back to your question right it's one is very general in terms of drugs alcohol um meet and you know sexual activity all of that and and one should ask yourself okay are you ready for all of this are you you know are they can they manage it do are they they are old enough to manage this you think i don't know at 18 if uh, kids raised in india are old enough to manage this so those are the physical um dangers that exist and in fact most of the undergrad dorms have parties with vaping drugs there are and alcohol there's no party if you do not i've heard this from many 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 uh, undergrad kids that are raised in the us who will say that if you do not drink or do drugs you can you cannot mingle and party you're essentially ostracized right uh, you can't uh, you know what do you go to the party and do because everybody's uh, drinking and on drugs so uh, again this is a rite of passage nobody questions it everybody says it's it's okay in college yeah you'll try a few drugs and marijuana and that's how you figure out whatever i don't know i i question these things uh, and i wonder if you know should it be a rite of passage should we really uh, should you try out everything in life i'm not sure right then some things are not good for you you should not right you could become an addict you could get into trouble so so there are these kinds of physical general physical uh, things that could uh, you know that are dangers and then of course you have the hindu uh, specific things and the hindu specific things are not physical they are not um, like i mentioned you know they are more uh, um, you know a, con- a conversion of sorts you know it's it's a an orientation a conversion in orientation of the child which is actually more dangerous than a physical act of violence uh if there's a dot buster or something you can report the crime you don't have to take it so personally and you can move on you can avoid certain bad neighborhoods whatever but uh, the mental uh, orientation sort of these indoctrination programs actually are coming not from some stranger of the street it is coming from the people who whom you give these tens of thousands of dollars to and they are teaching you it's part of the curriculum so they are in a position of power and you need the marks and you need the job and so um, you will comply 
Yeah, um, at the undergrad level, it was interesting that you mentioned all the physical dangers first. We had done a series on mental health. Mm-hmm. And the second part of that, um, there was a student who mentioned exactly the same thing about the pressures on the students to comply with the, you know, the the parties, the uh, the, the the drinks, the, the late hours, and uh, the people who don't are, uh, you know, feeling quite isolated. And there is a severe mental health problem that they face. And even the people who participate in all these things, they have their own mental health issues. And especially... Uh, students prone to some kind of an anxiety or depression uh, this is the time when all this kicks in and it gets very very hard for them to come out of the cycle so this um, this we uh, did discuss on one of the prior episodes and um, and um, it's true you're, you're very right mental health is a huge problem in these universities because every uh, in fact my uh, in Stanford it's called um, the Stanford Duck Syndrome, for example. So with social media and and also being in an elite college, uh, one is forced in some ways, an 18-year-old is forced to put up a facade of everything being hunky-dory and, you, you know, you're healthy, you're happy, you're, you're doing well in, in classes, yet you're partying till 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, so you, you, you're forced to sort of give that, uh, that facade and what happens is it's called uh, so they they joke uh, and and it's actually not a joke because they call it the Stanford duck syndrome where outside you you know the duck is gliding through the water seamlessly right effortlessly mm-hmm. but underneath the water the, the 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 feet the webbed feet are actually frantically pedaling right to cope up to just stay afloat right so it's called the Stanford duck syndrome where everything is hidden all your struggles are hidden. Uh, and yet you're cruising on the surface of of uh, of the water on a sunny beautiful sunny day so and with social media you know your people post such pictures of of just how how great they are and how well they can manage um you know their lives on campus and uh, the mental uh, health crisis is at its uh, peak another thing parents really underestimate is uh, the effect on uh, the students' health from this, uh, you know, freshman 15, they call it, right? You put on a minimum of 15 pounds from all the horrible, bad food that you get in the cafeteria. And uh, that's the meal plan that you absolutely have to take. And it's not just that you could become overweight. That's the least of your problems. It could set in cycle hormonal issues. The food is really bad. So that's something most parents don't even consider. Um, so all that is, you know, the physical uh, problems. Then I had a um, um, parent who um, sent her child, uh, her son to one of the, um, maybe the Ivy League schools. And um, as an undergrad, you're required to take a breadth of liberal arts courses. And uh, this boy was encouraged at home to take courses pertaining to Hinduism, Bhagavad Gita and all that. Uh, Because parents tend to think, okay, great. I mean, my son or my daughter is going to learn something about our heritage. How wonderful is this? But there's a big problem here, right? 
absolutely in fact you should not take you, you should absolutely <laughs> not take any uh, courses related to hinduism uh, shalini very much knows this uh, because this is what we deal with in, in infinity foundation in fact they are taught uh systematically that hindu scriptures justify violence they, they bring up the bhagavad gita and say uh, the bhagavad gita is a violent book i think this is what uh, wendy doniger uh said she's a very big professor of uh, hinduism in uh, university of chicago and this is and she says you know the gita is a dishonest book and it justifies violence and it goads people uh, you know to be violent and then of course you have the caste kaukai like rajiv ji says you know everything is about um, caste and 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 now with critical race theory caste has taken um, a new avatar if you will and where i like i mentioned you you're asked to take uh, a position of being an anti casteist an ally uh, to fight caste and uh, and of course they talk about how uh, um, the puranas and shastras full of rape culture there is uh, it, it totally embedded in in this and this oppressive nature of of uh, shastra so you cannot get away um, by saying this about any other religion but with the hinduism uh, it is an open season and the people that teach so one of the things parents should realize is that uh, and rajiv ji talks about this uh, at length is that when you go into university to study judaism or um, christianity uh, or islam or even jainism for that matter to some extent you will find the people who are practitioners of that religion um, are the ones that are teaching that religion right or the books uh, pertaining to uh, to that uh, you know that faith whereas for hinduism you will find outsiders you know outsiders uh, who do not practice the religion uh, so they have bring in this uh, you know this critical pedagogy so to speak into uh, hinduism mm -hmm. in fact critical hindu studies is a, a new um, a, a, a group of uh, scholars they formed this thing called critical hindu studies and they're looking at uh hindu shastras and and literature from the angle of social justice so i see yeah. so this is a free for all hinduism is a free for all anybody exactly. especially if you're not a hindu can come in and uh, say whatever you like yeah right? so the, the people the, so the professors who teach hinduism and shastras are all non hindus for the most part right or or so called hindus who were sold out they needed a job and they've gone to the other side and to talk about how bad hinduism is you know from a social justice standpoint so whereas it doesn't happen with islam it doesn't happen with judaism it hasn't happened with christianity because the people who are teaching these courses to the kids are all practitioners of the faith so this is a huge difference and so one thing parents should do is okay we're spending money uh, never to take uh, even a language class never even to take um mm -hmm. sanskrit or any of that you should have taught all of that before they were 18 and if you didn't mm -hmm. do the job don't expect somebody else to do the job just to close the loop on the the hindu boy who came back home after a year of college mm -hmm. he refused to pay to pray to krishna anymore okay so and that's when the mother started thinking you know what what happened in college so oh, okay so what you will also see with the liberal arts curriculum is that a definitely not do anything related with indology or uh, indian languages b you will get exposed to marxist ideas 
uh, as it pertains to the US and the Western civilization, which is also bad because I think um, most of you know most of the education um, is uh, Marxist in its nature when it comes to social sciences and humanities, even mm -hmm. in education. So when you look at uh, say the you know Harvard um, School of Education, the uh, the whole idea is to uh, uh, is to um, bring in this whole Marxist idea where you want to you want to make uh, teaching and learning about uh, teaching and learning all about social justice. So this has crept in. The left has done a wonderful job of creeping into every aspect of uh, you know of the university, every subject. Now, what is interesting is that many in higher ed. Uh, especially in the STEM fields, they left the people in the humanities alone. They said, you know what, these guys are crazy and, you know, let them do whatever they need to do. And, you know, of course, ours are objective sciences, you know, like physics and math. But lo and behold, they have entered the fields of um, STEM as well. Now, in higher education in the US, um, the journals are all hijacked by the left. So unless it's a uh, uh, it's something to do with social justice or improving the number of uh, women physicists, uh, 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 their representation in journals, uh, you really cannot publish anything. So this idea of patriarchy and, um, you know, oppressor, uh, the fields that are dominated by oppressors, right, like the white male, uh, they have uh, now uh, also succumbed to the woke commissar mob and this is done through uh, DEI offices in higher education this is also done through the entire hijacking and capturing of uh, uh, publications and journals so uh, the American Medical Association is totally captured uh, they go into this whole thing of how we have to re-educate every, everybody on uh, this new radical gender theory and uh, gender fluidity and things like that. And anyone who has a different view um, is silenced. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins is getting a lot of flack right now because, you know, he's a he's a guy from the left, but he said, you know, uh, ecologically, biologically, there are only two genders. And then uh, Dawkins is getting a lot of flack from um, all sides. So the even in higher ed, these have been captured. So, uh, but but in liberal arts, especially you, I think uh, Hindu parents should uh, stay away from uh, spending this kind of money uh, and and putting their kids through a liberal arts education. I mean, it, so let's face it, you know, Hindu parents haven't done much in instilling samskaras, values, uh, identity, all of that in their children. So, well, mm -hmm. that's, uh, something that maybe younger parents can think about doing, but the parents right now who are sending their children, well, you know, bygones are bygones, whatever has happened has happened. But what you can do is minimize the damage. And how do you minimize the damage? One is to not to ensure that your kids do not go into liberal arts as fashionable as they may sound. And number two, mm -hmm. to, you know, to uh, uh, ensure that um, these uh, the ideas like um, Rajiv Ji's ideas or, you know, the book uh, Being Different is a wonderful book. Uh, there are different um uh, books and resources available to actually sit and you know educate them before they go so that they at least understand 
uh, what is uh, about their identity, their civilization, what is the other side of this narrative, right? How are people giving, refuting and giving rebuttals to this uh, indoctrination that goes on in universities so that they have some idea. And number three is there are organizations like Hindu Students Council. Uh, Hindu Students Council is a very good organization. It started off small, but it's in many, many, many universities. And if you're you know, Hindu on campus, there's Hindu on campus and Hindu Yuva, right? Hindu, yeah, Hindu Yuva is there. But Hindu Students Council is also a very good um, uh, group. And okay. uh, they they fight a lot of Hindu phobia. Uh, Hindu Yuva is sort of a networking. They, they don't do that much activism, I think. But Hindu Students Council is, is everywhere. And uh, Hindu Amer uh, American Foundation is another place. But Hindu Students Council is very, very targeted towards um, uh, Hindu kids in college. Now, your university may not have a Hindu Students Council, but I think um, you should encourage your child to then start, um, you know, start a Hindu Students Council chapter in your college, uh, in their college and, and, and uh, have other kids join it. So sometimes Hindu parents are just looking for solutions without being part of the solution. So I think if the true. time has come that, you know, you just can't expect a magic pill to solve all your problems after you having done no work. So one of the things that you can encourage your child is to say, hey, if you don't have a Hindu Students Council chapter in your college, why don't you start? And I will, you know, help you connect and I will, you know, and as a parent, you can try and help as well um, to make your child successful, to provide support to your child as he or she is doing uh, these things which are kind of unprecedented. You know, it was like, okay, lie low, don't, you know, don't create uh, ripples and just, you know, settle down and then we'll see. That is the general attitude. But college is also just four years. And if you start off in the first year to start a Hindu Students Council chapter, it you know, by year two or three is when... Um, that will come to fruition and meanwhile you 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 uh, you collect some other hindu students and you you start having programs so there are people to help you but uh, i think hindu parents should also encourage hindu children to take uh, leadership and put in effort uh, to make it happen because it's not too late it's not too late i think um, a lot of these organizations uh, they, um, I mean, Hindu students tend to join organizations that say Indian students, right? I mean, it includes uh, everybody. It is not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes um, what happens, especially in uh, maybe in Ivy Leagues or even in the University of California system is um, a lot of uh, pressure on declaring Hindu festivals, like say, Holi is violent, Diwali is casteist, and so on. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressure on this Hindu students to join uh, the protesting gang. And uh, the, the few students who do not join are left with no friends. And uh, that can create a lot of, you know, isolation. And uh, uh, so maybe parents can also educate their children to that these kinds of things happen. And, uh, you know, festivals are not uh, casteist and, you know, um, they can always uh, uh, stand up to all these things, right? Along with their friends, or at least they can stop putting their friends down. The people who do resist um, should not be ostracized. I think that much can be communicated at home, right? 
Yeah, and for example, you took you brought up Holi. Now, Holi against uh, Hindutva was the campaign that the left had started. The Hindu phobic groups started. Now, Hindu Students Council did something I, I think similar to to that, but on the other side where they said United Colors of Holi. And so, if you do join a group like Hindu Students Council, you also have the large network support of a nationwide network that would support you in whatever you're doing, right? So it's important that uh, children who want to celebrate and be their sort of authentic self um, and and uh, and practice their faith, they can join these groups because, see, most of the other groups, be it, uh, you know, you have the, uh, um, uh, the Jewish kids have the Hillel house or whatever, they have uh, support. They, the Christian kids, of course, have... Um, seminaries and and christian faith groups that support mm -hmm. them uh, and of course the leftist groups you know whether it's lbgtq alphabet soup they all have support groups unfortunately the indian the hindu kid does not have uh, any support and support. so hindu students council type groups with um, you know with this attitude of embracing uh, hinduism uh, needs to be brought into many campuses in fact the, there is a hindu students association which is actually a leftist group. Uh, they they are supported by uh, uh, institutions like Sadhana, you know, the Association for Progressive Hindus, as they call themselves. So these are all Marxist Hindu, so-called Hindu groups, uh, which are all Just of that. Like, uh, I think there's one Hindus for Human Rights, which is to be avoided like the plague. Hindu, uh, Hindu Students so, Association is also to be avoided. Okay, because... Uh, Anything with the word Hindu in it is not necessarily run by Hindus. Absolutely. That is another strange thing in the US, right? Absolutely. Because these are all, you know, there is a group called Sadhana, which is a, a vicious group that attacks, uh, you know, anything Hindu and anything Dharmic in the name of Hindu uh, uh, um, Hindutva and, 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 and they call them, you know, these casteist uh, Hindutva, Vadi, things like that. So, um, yes, one should... Uh, you know, join the correct group. So parents can do that kind of uh, paid work, can do the research and tell the kids to, hey, this, here's a number, make it easy for them. Here's a number, you know, call them. And in fact, the parents themselves can make some of these connections. There's nothing wrong in saying, hey, I have a kid coming there. Whom whom should he or she call? And, and establish those networks even before they go. Yeah, this is, uh, this is wonderful information. Uh, what would you rank as the top danger for children going to the US to study from India today? I think the whole venture itself, if you ask me, I know I have two kids in the US and I might look as a hypocrite saying this, but I actually think that, that one should stay away from uh, sending your children abroad. Uh, A, because you are feeding a crocodile. Um, a, the American universities are about, uh, they are a business, right? Mm -hmm. And you're paying money and not even getting what you want. Your kids come back home as a disaster. Now, why would you actually pay tens of thousands of dollars and um, and do this to your to your child, right? Because your, your whole life you have worked hard. Everything that you've done is for the sake of children. You've made sacrifices, personal sacrifices. You'd love your children deeply and you 
you take loans and hard-earned money and you dump it overseas. You have to understand what the U.S. education model is uh, apart from this. So the undergrad education is where the U.S. colleges make the most of their money, right? So like I said, you pay for room, you, you're mandated to you know live there, so room and board and tuition for four years. So the money that they get from the undergrad students is what keeps the tennis courts, the swimming pools, um, the entire gardens and all the facilities going, right? So it pays for that. And the remaining money is used for endowment, things like that. Now, American colleges, so they, they uh, and undergrad admissions also you are discriminated against, right? Because... Um, Asian Asian males are considered white adjacent. They don't want them in, in certain universities and they have they've built up this brand. So the Ivy Leagues have built up such a brand and most American colleges, it's a brand that you're buying. Yeah, you can proudly say my son or daughter went to Harvard and it's just a brand. So that what they are selling to you is a brand name. Forget about education. In fact, some of the uh, in in Harvard and all the undergrad courses are taught by PhD students. They're not even taught by professors till you get to some higher classes, right? So people don't even look at that. They just want the Harvard brand um, without the, so whereas in Princeton, I guess actual professors teach you in the undergrad. Whereas in Harvard, I've been told that, you know, uh, a lot of the classes, the professors don't even bother teaching you. These are all freshmen, you know, big classes and the, the TA just teaches you. So, so we are willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars for, um, for this kind of education. Now, in grad school, so you can ask yourself, so how come then do they have, uh, how does an Ivy League, um, if they just, you know, if their incoming class is not selected uh, through a meritocratic process, um, how do they maintain their rankings, right? So this is where it's interesting. So in grad school, if you look, you will find um, most of them, 80 to 90% of grad school kids, any, it can go from anywhere from 65 to 90, 95, uh, are all foreign uh, students. So how they maintain ranking is, they in grad school is where the meritocracy kicks in. So they will get the top kids from Eastern Europe and China and India and, and give them some aid and, you know, the old fashioned way of going to America. So and then uh, you you end up becoming cheap labor. Somebody else like the IIT or uh, some other institute has done all the hard work of uh, teaching you. And then you, they get that they get to pick the best and the brightest from all these institutions worldwide. And they bring them over to MIT and Harvard and all of them. And then they put them into research and um, and they churn out papers and then they're at the top of the game. And that's how the ranking is got. So on one side, they poach the brains for maintaining ranking. And mm -hmm. in, in, in the past, they used to have mostly uh, US kids doing the undergrad. And what is really sad is these schools are actually doing America a dis, uh, disservice. Because they're supposed to educate America, American kids to be the best and the brightest. Whereas what they do is they just get a whole lot of boatload of American kids for the undergrad. It's all, it, there's no meritocracy and they're not really not. And a few of them, of course, go on to grad school. But if you look at the number of kids from overseas coming for, to grad school, it shows that American, the American system has not prepared their own for their graduate education.
right? Because they're poaching off other countries. So it's a disservice to the American citizens. It's also a terrible thing that they do by poaching the best and the brightest minds from the world over. So this is the uh, <laughs> this is sort of the ethos of of American universities. There are they are a shark like uh, business attitude they have towards education. And there's no idea of you know there's no concept of vidya dhanam or any of that. Right? They might give you a scholarship because you're good enough, and you they they pay for they make an investment in you, and they can reap off many patents and this and that and papers and prestige through you. That's why they give you something. So if you understand um, how the American system works, then you would not even bother sending your kids uh, to the U.S. Because their skills, another very disturbing thing is that the kids that go through undergrad and come out through with their liberal arts degree actually don't get jobs. Uh, mm -hmm. They they end up being diversity officers. In fact, if you look at any of these Ivy League uh, universities, look at the admissions officers' profiles, right? Go to uh, Columbia University and go to LinkedIn and say admissions officers. There'll be a 10 or 10 of them. In the website, they'll be, they'd have listed all the admissions officers. All of them will be anywhere from 25 to 35. All of them will have some useless degree in uh, in humanities and social sciences. And they sit as admissions officers, making decisions to bring in People. So, of course, they will bring in uh, similar birds of the same feather, right, who are into social justice and, you know, students like that, which itself is, a, you know, they are in no position to make decisions. They, they don't have the IQ nor the experience or anything. They just undergrad kids who've done a useless degree who go back uh, becoming an admi admissions officer. And you can look at that. Whereas in the UK, it's not like that. In the UK, if you want to get into uh, Oxford and Cambridge, a professor will interview you. Here, some, you know, 20, 25 to 30 year old will interview you and ask you about what, you know, and the interview means nothing. The, mm -hmm. it's, the whole process is so corrupt. So do you want to spend tens of thousands of dollars and send your kid with all these risks attached just for a degree? Mm -hmm. I think you can instead, I think we have to, rethink and reimagine education and say, what should my child be? They should have a skill. They should be able to, you know, have outer and inner balance. So, you know, mental health is so important. You just send your kid here. He has a Harvard degree, but he's a basket case. It's not worth it. So we have to rethink this whole thing. Should we even send the kids overseas? Should be a question that every parent should ask, Hindu or otherwise. Yeah, it's been an eye-opening conversation filled with valuable suggestions. One last thing. Could you just talk briefly about the South Asia Studies Departments? Because I know that, again, just as uh, Indian parents and kids do get attracted to learning about their heritage, you know, quote-unquote, learning about their heritage, there is also this attraction towards South Asian Studies. South Asian studies, first of all, clubbing India with South Asia is problematic. It it merges um, India into this vast area. There has been um, many, many Hindu-phobic um, professors. So, for example, you have this um, Audrey Trishke out of Rutgers, and then you have Wendy Doniger. We have enough Jeffrey Kirpal. We have tons of, in fact, any South Asian professor you can by default say is 
Hindu phobic, unless of course he's working on some poetry or something benign like that. You know, the field itself is sort of benign and doesn't get controversial. You have Sheldon Pollock of Columbia. So um, Rajiv Ji, out of Infinity Foundation, you know, done a lot of work on uh, these kinds of people, what they've put out in terms of atrocity literature and scholarship uh, in the name of, you know, scholarship. So uh, an example uh, for fun, for people to see how corrupt the American system is. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there was this uh, grievance study hoax. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Uh, three people, uh, James Lindsay, um, Professor uh, Peter Bogosian, and uh, Helen Pluckrose, three of them, they got together and they were very troubled by the social sciences papers, right, that come out. Like you have all these you have a bunch of departments with ending with studies uh, called fat studies, um, uh, African-American studies and um, LBGTQ, whatever, gender, queer uh, studies, things like that. And essentially coming under the umbrella of grievance studies. So these guys sat down and they were professors in philosophy, math and all that. So they wrote a bunch of papers, 20 papers under different names and submitted it to these very so-called prestigious journals of in, in grievance studies, uh, you know, uh, area. And out of the 20-odd papers, 16 got accepted, one or two even got awards. And these are all hoax papers where they, you know, they talked about, uh, you know, one was about uh, mm -hmm. the dog owners and they did some statistical analysis, some ridiculous things like that, like mm -hmm. dogs meeting in a park and how that, has something to do with rape culture some you know just like totally crazy things like that right it, it sounded ridiculous and so ridiculous that they actually got uh, awards and the papers were accepted then they they brought it out they got replies back and they they filmed a, uh, uh, a little documentary uh, and 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 then showcased this whole uh, the, the the essentially the corruption behind the uh, in academia in these uh, social sciences uh, fields Right. So the grievance study hoax, if you Google, you will find it. It's hilarious. It's a good watch. Now, uh, similarly, what happens in um, Indology and is that uh, and study of India is that a bunch of professors all get together, they study and then they get a, um, a journal and they run conferences and they refer to each other. And uh, essentially, they let nobody in who has an opposing view. So if you have an opposing view or you want to debate, they don't even let you in. So this is not inquiry. This is not inquiry into truth or finding. This is not an academic inquiry in, a, in its real sense. So this is a program to indoctrinate. Um, they have a narrative that they want to stick to. So Indology is something that is so corrupt. Uh, anyone who listens to Raji Malhotra will, will you can see. Uh, how corrupt it is, how deep the corruption runs, how um, ubiquitous it is. It, it pervades all uh, universities that have Indology studies. It also pervades Indian universities. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, people like uh, Ashoka and uh, other, uh, you know, JNU uh, are all trained. So if you want to be in Western academic circles and publish, you have to, uh, the journals are all controlled by them. So you have to stick to the narrative, otherwise your paper will not be accepted. 
so the entire thing is is very 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 corrupt so we need to establish our own ecosystem we need to study uh, the other the way the other studies us you know and and establish our own journals china has begin to begun to do that china has their own journals they they study um, and they control the journals they decide who gets published so i think india has to do that but unfortunately we need a entire ecosystem uh, we need to build around that it's been an eye opening fascinating conversation filled with many valuable suggestions we thank vijaya ji for her time and hope that the parents listening have found it to be an equally rewarding conversation please follow us on all social media like twitter instagram facebook facebook groups ku telegram with the handle at hindu parenting we are also available on podcast platforms like spotify apple podcasts and google podcasts you can also find our podcasts on youtube please subscribe to us at hinduparenting.substack.com to get our podcast directly in your email inbox we will be back with another episode soon until then namaste namaste